Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Joshua Shaw Audio Experience. Firstly, thank you for giving me a bit of your attention. I'm honored you trusted me with it, and I promise to return the favor by giving you a ton of edutainment value back. Maybe it's a bit extreme to say that the global supplement market sees American industry stakeholders as like disorder-level narcissists, but at one point in the not-so-long-ago history, it was probably very true. As dynamic forces from borderless digital platforms and online marketplaces continue to disrupt the supplement industry, it's more important than ever that brands with global ambitions must have a deep local respect towards tastes, requirements, the culture and maybe social norms, and consumer behaviors. That much-needed strategic paradigm shift is at the core of why I wanted to create this new content series. It will focus on deep conversations with trusted industry strategists and practitioners that focus on key international regions or territories. I'm also super excited to announce that this new content series will be powered by the functional ingredient company, New Live Science. You might have noticed that the New Live Science team has been like crisscrossing the globe all year like Santa Claus spreading knowledge on the Astrogen Worldwide Tour. Speaking of estrogen, this powerhouse ingredient can help increase the absorption of many vital nutrients by promoting a healthy gut environment. Moreover, New Live Science recently had a groundbreaking human clinical study published that showed estrogen supplementation improved intestinal barrier integrity, helped promote healthy microbiota in the gut, and helped decrease harmful bacteria populations, among other benefits. Oh, and if you're wondering, estrogen does have novel food status in the EU. But if you are looking for more information on estrogen, the recent study that I just kind of noted, or Nula Science in general, I'll leave their website in the contents description. But to kick this content series off, I couldn't think of a better way than to tackle the complex and fragmented European supplement market with Nick Morgan who is the owner of the strategy consultancy Sports Integrated and then the market data company Nutrition Integrated. In our conversation, we cover everything from the changing retail landscape to trending brands and product categories, plus marketplace challenges and opportunities that have been caused from shifting consumer behaviors and motivations. We also explore some like contemporary news that spans the THG takeover bids, the prime hydration effect, and why Grenade's Oreo Bar collab has market-bending potential. These are just some of the interesting topics we chatted about in this episode, but without further delay, here is my recent conversation I had with my good friend, Nick Morgan. So it's looks like, uh, you know, it's a little bit of looking like in the mirror for me, or at least um, that's the sense I get from like our audiences that overlap. And I'm not sure if you get something similar, but sometimes people will message me and they'll say, hey, you need to meet Nick Morgan. And then 
the next thing they say is he's like the European version of you. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's like a like a compliment or a uh, diss statement, uh, but I know if somebody were to say I'm the American version of, of Nick Morgan, I'd be happy with that analogy. But um, I guess for people that don't know, uh, now you know, because we do actually know each other. We've known each other for a handful of years. We've participated in, I think, both in-person and virtual conferences together. And you know, I don't need to say this, but I respect the hell out of him and his insights and everything and, and from the global supplement industry, just the ability to provide a ton of value. So when I was thinking about, you know, doing one of these like global, regional kind of deep dives, he was on my must have list. But I think I've stroked your ego uh, enough, ah. Nick. <laughs> Welcome. I, I'll take the ego stroke. Um, thank you very much for the invite. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be on. So I'll I'll take that and 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 certainly vice versa. I, I have had a couple of times uh, referenced about being you being the U.S. equivalent. Although I actually think you you do some content far better than I'll ever be able to do it. So um, um, if I can add value today for everyone listening, great. I hope that I hope they'll get something from it. Well, I appreciate the uh, the the ego stroke on my end uh, as well. But um, let's kind of kick off and. and for me, I, I kind of want to get an assessment of how you're seeing like the sports and active nutrition industry and how that's kind of evolving or changing across the, you know, UK and then more broadly Europe. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, it is a great question. It's a very, very bloody big question um, in, in general terms. And probably a, a nice place to start is for um so for everyone listening it's just a couple of rules around it i mean people shouldn't ever forget when they think about europe just how fragmented it is so you mentioned uk and then obviously the rest of europe i mean there's a lot of countries cross-border languages currencies and so on so i think people just need to bear in mind that to some extent sports and active nutrition across all of that as an entity is is remarkably complicated um and it causes so many challenges and of course opportunities so for everyone listening, it's just a reminder. Um, sometimes the best way to think about that is I think the UK is its own beast. It really is in terms of uh, probably the biggest market within Europe to think about it. Um, and then probably people would carve it north um, or let's say Scandinavia. They'll do south with Spain, Portugal, Italy together, central uh, France and Germany and uh, um, the Benelux region. And then they might go east as well. Um, and it's quite fascinating because I think the UK would be seen as very progressive, uh, quite democratized for a word. So let's say sport through to active and it's full expanse of a continuum. Um, Scandinavia, very similar to so Sweden, Denmark, um, Norway. Um, I suppose you could include Finland and that um, also quite democratized. But then we go east um, and people would still describe it as quite, quote unquote, core. So the original heartland of sports nutrition, um, core bodybuilders, I guess the original aesthetic type imagery, uh, and so on and so forth. So that's interesting. And then, and then Spain, uh, Portugal is, is, is there too. And I think in general, just honestly, I think it's not too dissimilar to what you would say in, in the U S and this isn't really about the comparisons though. It's about this continuum from sport through to active. So wherever people put their rods in the ground about definitions, there's just a continued stream of more, more consumers interested in sport and active nutrition for the purposes of being better. That takes a continuum from someone who's super pumped about performance, faster, higher, and stronger through to people who are exercising and consuming protein or anything thereafter for the purposes of health. And that would be an overarching, um, that'd be an overarching trend, I think. But with that, of course, comes challenges. 
um, and the fragmentation of Europe is quite a challenge as well for people to, to think through. Um, but it's buoyant. I'd say it's relatively buoyant um, in terms of an industry, notwithstanding current challenges around inflation and so on and so forth. I didn't get to go to FIBO this year, but I always kind of took at least some of the previous experiences that that um, region um, in terms of where that's held and, and just kind of the, the brands that were kind of exhibiting there and, and showing up there and even some of the consumers, I was feeling like they, as you said, was more towards the like core aesthetic, um, you know, kind of a little bit going back in time of sports nutrition and that they were really in love with that. And, and obviously this is a generalization, but I, I do feel like there's a little bit of a, a higher, I guess, uh, density of people that still are you know, in love with that previous, uh, you know, kind of phase of sports nutrition. Uh, and so, honestly, and so they should be. Um, we, we should never lose sight of where the industry has come from. And and I think we've got to be careful with, with it in Europe spe- specifically, that we don't sort of alienate it um, for the want of an ambition of something that people see as quite a lofty ambition to get to more people. Um, it makes people feel a little bit more comfortable maybe about their brand and their values and who they're targeting. And it's it's a bit softer and nicer, isn't it? But actually, the high it's still a higher way to frequency of purchase for those core consumers because it's a consumer that really knows what it wants, who it wants to buy it from, um, and, and still buys into the core principles of sports nutrition, quality products, um, uh, efficacy, uh, innovation, format delivery, and so on. And honestly, there's a massive discussion and debate across Europe, across all people. Um, people will know um, that we would we would love to get opinions from. We were like discussing this stuff over peers. Honestly, just are people making money from active nutrition, and in which countries is that happening, or is it in a particular channels or through specific formats? Um, because some of the big original brands still do very well, doing exactly what they've done for a very long time. And that's not to say they don't have to evolve. They don't need to become better at um, channel execution or how they resonate with the new generation of consumers and so on. But they're still selling a lot of the original stuff. And I think we just gotta be careful. We assume that that's not in decline um, because I'm not entirely convinced it is for a number of um, brands. And in fact, in Germany, which is where FIBO's held, probably one of the shining lights is, is ESN, um, which posted, you know, last year was acquired um, you're looking at revenues in excess of 200 million euros, and most people did not have a clue they were doing that level of, um, and that's on core products. Um, you know, again, people will see the response to the Hut Group, even GPN with ON, Jim Bean in Eastern Europe is doing over 100 million euros, Prozis in Portugal over 100 million euros. They're all traditional D2C sports nutrition brands with core consumers, and a little bit more active as well, but still selling the core products. Um, so I think we just got to be careful. I mean, the, the trends go in a certain direction, no question. We haven't lost a great market at all in the original, by the way. Um, to some extent, I think some brands are sweeping up the fact that some people have moved away from it. Um, uh, it's a really interesting debate, actually. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on on those statements. I think sometimes people are too quick to 
forget that there are some really great prime markets uh, that are centralized on what they want to know, like you said, what they what they are looking for over you know a broader spectrum. You start to open yourself up to a lot more risks when you are trying to be, you know, arguably everything to everyone. You end up you know losing sight of of who you are, and you end up being nothing to no one. It's like that scenario that happens too much, but you see maybe a shinier object or a bigger shinier object and you think hey let me grasp for that but then you forget what kind of got you there and i want to you know cherry pick a, another comment that you made around you know obviously we have no idea in terms of what could potentially happen from like an economic front but for maybe or or a probable recessionary period that could extend for some time that with the european market being you know like you said fragmented and and kind of unique in, in different countries and, and a lot of different kind of unique scenarios that happen there. I mean, is that something that has become a bigger challenge for a lot of these brands that are, are saying, okay, like, are we going to, you know, maybe even hyper-focus in certain areas that we think those economies are going to do um, relatively better? Or is it something that they've dealt with multiple times before and they know how to kind of deal with that? Yeah. So uh, it's a really good question. And the reason it's a good question is, Actually, for everyone, um, not all the brands that people would name check across Europe are available in all European countries. I think you, you cover um, in your content, like the group of my protein particularly, which is good. You've mentioned a few others. Um, and that is a great example in terms of the ability from a D2C point of view, um, replicate the online scenario, build distribution networks across Europe. So once you're in Holland, you get a great movement around Europe, et cetera. And, or if you want to build a distribution in other areas, fine. Um, they are. But actually, what you find is there's not too many brands, honestly, that are truly available in, let's say, more than 10 European countries. And in fact, I'd arguably say that there's not many even in that many. So to some extent, it there's not, not many people. They're almost facing the challenge in probably their own market only. And then there's a few brands that are looking to pick their battles. So for those brands that go across multiple countries, I think it, it's important to remember that within every European country, there'll be one brand that leads that country and it will be a it'll be an indigenous it'll be a own country. So in the my protein in the UK, but they'll probably be number two in a few. ESN is a German brand wins in Germany. Proces is a Portugal brand that wins in Portugal. Yamamoto is an Italian brand wins in Italy. So for brands that go across multiple countries, you're then playing the no run number two, three, four or five. But of course, that can be great for growth. So it's about picking your battles then. Which country that can they then wrestle on the way the pricing structure is working? Are those brands more omni or online, depending on who's winning in each of those markets? So those are some of the challenges, really, I think people are doing. So to your question, I think it's about picking your battles based on how many countries you're in and therefore how much can you truly afford to try and do battle in an inflationary market when things become quite price conscious um, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the key point for everyone to understand. And again, just reinforces the challenge of the fragmented nature of Europe um, and, uh, and the strength of the economies, depending on which country. Now, we've mentioned like a ton of brands already, um, but if you can kind of recall all the names you've kind of mentioned and maybe even thinking about, um, you know, some ones that maybe are flying under the radar right now that are you know, getting some growth behind them. Um, and they could be in, I guess, other formats, because I think right now we've been talking a lot around some of the traditional caps, powders, pills, brands, not to say that they don't also have, you know, functional foods or functional beverages. But I know at least 
you know, a number of brands that probably wouldn't be considered in the top one or two, three, if we're talking, you know, aggregate sales of all products. But then if they were just looking at one product category, they would be doing exceptionally well. But like, are there names that come to mind when you're, when I'm kind of talking through this, that you're like, yeah, these are brands that are going to be really highly sought after globally um, because of a format or maybe a product or, you know, whatever they're, that they're championing. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, if you go around, let me have a think about this. So I, I guess protein is a bit trickier, right? I think all the brands we've just named or the ones that a lot of people would think about in Europe, those protein, it's about who wins with protein in different countries. Um, I think bar wise, you've got, that's probably one of the most um, tip of the tongue type categories that people have discussed for the last few years. Um, so grenade available in the US and bought by Mondelez recently. Um, typically the one people would say is, has, has actually moved away from being, let's call it a sports nutrition brand in, in its true entity and really focused on the bars. So you've probably got three actually in that grenade, for their bars, Fulfill, um, bought by Ferrero, and uh, Barbells. Um, and I think they do particularly well. Um, they definitely do well across Europe and, and have got some global appeal. And then Barbells, you move into that space where they've got what, they've got Noco, which is sort of the, yep. let's call it the amino energy, sort of similar equivalent. Maybe they would both brands would hate me even making that comparison. I uh, so should never do that, but, um, sort of you know like branch chain amino acid drink in a can what's that 250 caffeinated without um got sort of nice ubiquitous appeal across um across europe um dietary supplements wise it's, it's actually um it's quite tricky because i think that goes a little bit again quite indigenous into each country but there's definitely i tell you where we've had a lot of interest there's a lot of the delivery formats about liquids so there's brands like there's a brand called yorzuki that's moving across europe um, some of the collagens moving across Europe in those uh, liquid sachets as well. So that's that's actually proving very popular. Um, but in terms of uh, the key brands, um, I think most people would be able to name them. The bars and the drinks with Noco, Barbells, Grenade, etc. They'd probably be the ones that are really interesting. The other a category that's definitely got global appeal, but but got really good coverage is the redefined world of convenient food. I mean, oh my word. I mean, who saw the Huel and the Y foods of this world achieve what they've done in such a short space of time. I mean, genuine global appeal. Huel's already in the US, um, in a, look, a number of European countries. Y food is a German brand for those that don't know. Um, again, they wouldn't like the comparisons made, but to some extent are all in the same category. And it's a meal replace, a re real replacement for want of a category or product description but is redefined for positive people as convenient food. And it's just an amazing little niche category that, God, I could get four brands in Europe and you could get them to nearly 450, 500 million, half a billion from four brands nearly. That's quite scary, isn't it? It's, yeah, and, and I like what you said about the, you know, reframing of those products because you think about them, I think traditionally, and maybe these, you know, global brand perspective of, you know, a slim fast, um, I know more, more from the American side or whatever, or like an Atkins nutritionals, these are too big, but like those were weight management meal replacement. Like that was how people thought of them was like some, you know, a, association to a, a diet or weight management type of a product where now we're talking about a more complete convenient meal that is really just a reframing of, of an existing, um, product that's been around for a while. I mean, like meal replacement powders has been, 
you know, we're talking sports nutrition has been around forever. Um, this were one of the core original products within the American market. But now, to your point around, I think a lot of the, if it's European, um, like you said, if it's Huel or or Y food that just got that, you know, massive deal from Nestle, or even in, in the Australian market, I think there's been a few that had some decent exits or, or large investments that came in. Um, and even in the, I think in the U.S. we had recently, and I wouldn't consider it maybe the most successful exit, but Soylent got bought. Um, and that category as a whole meal replacement, if it's powders, bars, or shakes, seem to be extremely hot. And I don't know like what the ceiling is of that. It just seems like people are asking for more and more. And it seems like there is innovation. And now you're looking at more savory variants. And like it's going in so many different directions. And it's a bit fascinating for me to watch it from like a global perspective. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's a great one. Uh, for, for everyone in Europe, the, um, the it was a typically constrained category because there's quite strict regulations about what you would call a meal replacement supplement. And it's defined by exactly calories and um, the percentages of the vitamins and minerals that go in and the percentage of the nutrients, et cetera. So previously it was very, or it still is a very highly regulated, but then people have kind of, what they've done is come away from that and said, we're not going to conform to that. And we're not going to make claims because nutrition and health claims regulation in Europe. So we're not going to say replace one meal with this shake and you will maintain weight, replace two and you'll lose weight. People have gone, we don't need to make those claims. We're just going to say we're a healthy, convenient uh, food. And I always say the same thing. Like I think if you mapped needs, ingredients, categories, I think it's a very stable ecosystem of what people would describe as all the things you could possibly do. And, you know, we've all been to shows. So it's Expo West or um fever whatever it might be i everyone asks the same question what's new but it's never about what's new it's about what's evolving and i think it's reinterpretation redefinition and reimagination those are the key things that are driving innovation and most of the products that we suddenly think are winning are people who've taken something and are just better resonating it to consumers in today's world and i don't think there's no better example than that convenient food category and what i love about it is they've shifted like SimFast for strugglers, again, quote unquote, maybe they don't like that, to convenient food for positive people. Um, and they're moving into effectively like hot and savory uh, meals, which is like originally people would say that's someone who's not proactive about eating because they've just gone to a, it's like a, a, like a, you know, a, a ready meal solution and then gone, no, you're really proactive because you're short on time. So have this because it's really healthy. It's like a complete reframing yeah. and it's genius, but it's so simple. Um, and that is going to add so much to it. Um, you know, we're, we're quite close to that over here in terms of those products. And, and actually, I think they're pretty good. You know, I think they're really good. Um, so the scope on that is huge. Um, but as they broaden, they'll face more more eyes on whether people think their innovation's any good. And I feel for them in that respect, because I think people will look to critique it and they'll be quite harsh because it's really hard once you get to that sort of where they've got to, where you go next, isn't it? And they're likely to have more failures than successes from this point on, just because it becomes a bit more difficult. Um, but what they've built is phenomenal. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I do want to kind of talk about maybe some product categories that have seen to, at least in the U.S. market, have um, are definitely, I wouldn't even consider them secondary categories. They'd be probably more tertiary, like, you know, kind of that wouldn't be the first things you would grab, probably not the second things you grab, but then you tend to probably then think about them. Um, maybe if you have some 
you know, health condition um, or something that you are trying to hyper target. So what I'm thinking about here is more like sleep products or maybe like, you know, stress support or relaxation type of categories. Um, are any of those starting to like catch fire in any of the markets that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, all the, I would say that a lot of things that we would say between North America um, and Europe in terms of the key trends would be not too dissimilar. I think brain in its holistic fashion, um, I typically break that down into four categories based on how brands, it's like energizing the brain, which is like focus, the functioning of the brain, it's like the cognition type, be clever, be smart, or potentially degeneration. The balance of the brain is like mood and anxiety, and then the regeneration is around sleep. You could go into a lot of European countries and find some great brands. Germany is a brand called Brain Effect. There's one in uh, UK called Nubria. Um, there's a few others actually that are popping up. They're very brain focused. The microbiome and the gut, of course, you won't be unsurprised to hear that one come through. Um, female health, which is already a massive category, but again, we've got some cool democratized brands, um, not always female owners, but female driven sort of ownership, sort of combining that story, which is really nice. Um, so all of those areas are catching fire to, to your term. And um, it's then all about which brand builds the community the quickest, gets the positive feedback, gets gets the move. Um, and, and actually all of those trends are very relevant. Um, I think in the broader scope of sports and active, I think it challenges massively what the hell a definition is. And I will say that th there's a real issue that discernibly there's no definition to sports nutrition anymore at all. Um, um, and so what is or what isn't included in that? Because um, most people exercise, but doesn't mean to say they're a, a sports and active consumer per se. But things like sleep for sports, very relevant. Things like sleep for any normal people, hugely relevant. And they're all sort of um, catching fire. Um, they really are, actually. Um, the biggest thing for me is around the format delivery. So capsules and tablets are still really a sort of a staunch delivery for that. It, and it, make, it makes sense because it's easy to consume the right dose and, you know, so on. But there's a lot of more, um, you know, let's say more accessible, accessible formats that are coming through that people are looking to deliver functional ingredients, which again is another massively blurring issue, isn't it? Um, which we've all spoken about lots when we go to all the shows, just the fact that you just can't cut and dice it very easily anymore. Um, which is, by the way, one of the biggest challenges um, to the permission of a brand. Yeah, because when you start to get into format delivery um, innovation, you know, then you start to, I think, welcome in or, or maybe the interest comes in with some of these large food and beverage conglomerates that say, well, we'd love to you know, add some fancy nutraceutical ingredients or maybe some herbal ingredients or something like that in, you know, say a cereal or, or something that they already have a lot of success in and they have massive scale to be able to create and then you're competing against some of these more innovative brands that maybe cut their teeth in sports or active nutrition space and then it's a matter of you know price over maybe innovation or maybe you know how they're approaching marketing or whatever that is but it does it's a, it's an interesting kind of cat and mouse game that happens because i think a lot of times brands will look at that as maybe a scary thing that uh, one of these large companies come in and, and launch something that would be in their backyard. I tend to think that they're kind of really mainstreaming it to a point where they're, they're going to have a lot of marketing dollars. They're going to have a lot of ability to build out um, you know, what is important about these specific maybe ingredients or products. And mm -hmm. that ultimately will bring in people that 
will eventually become more interested in the category. And then they're going to evolve probably to some of those more specialized uh, products. So it's it, it ends up being probably a net positive in the long run. But I think at the beginning, you're, you're scared when I think a lot of these big uh, brands kind of come in there. And I think that that's just you know, natural occurrence across the globe right now that maybe this goes back to some earlier comments about you know, maybe not losing the roots of sports nutrition. I've always said sports nutrition is the, you know, cultural epicenter or like the innovation epicenter for larger food and beverage right now. Like everybody's trying to think about the health and wellness halo. And they're looking at some of these highly, you know, targeted, um, really innovative brands that are speaking to that day in and day out and saying, hey, what can we grab from that? What is interesting? What are they doing that we can kind of, you know, reposition or reframe or put within our system that makes more sense? Um, and I think that that's just naturally going to continue to happen, but it's a matter of making sure that you know, I think as a smaller, more innovative brand, like what do you offer? How do you continue to kind of build on that and not be scared when these bigger companies come in there? Because it's inevitable, they will come in. Yeah, yeah. For, for every category, there is a massive um, conglomerates who would want to potentially purchase it or or absorb it or maybe try to do something themselves in that space. Whether it's a dietary supplement, as we know they exist, if you go into FMCG or CBG and drinks and cereals, for example, um, they're all there waiting um, and looking to see what's happening. And, and to be honest, I, I really believe most of them are looking for someone to create it, um, give them proof of principle that it's the right thing to do, and then they need to decide whether they buy or build. Um, um, for every magic spoon, in terms of the cereal in the US, we have like three or four of those as well now. For all of those sort of ones that are there, I think the one world that I think is a real challenge, I, I generally still believe is drinks because, um, honestly, <sighs> categorization of functional drinks in, in sort of mass retail channels over here is a nightmare. You know, a, a, a Waitrose is different from Tesco's, it's different from Sainsbury's. No one does it the same. Um, once you go into drinks, every benefit has to com compete against every other benefit rather than just immunity versus immunity. The immunity drink has to, you know, go against a collagen drink, has to go against a water, um, an energy drink and so on. It's it's honestly, it's a nightmare. Um, and the protein waters, I think, probably has been the most surprising for a lot of people. It probably hasn't quite caught off as much as people thought it would in, in retail channels. So um, I think there's, there's definitely a lot of there's so much space and work to be done in terms of that true movement into mass mainstream channels, groceries, et cetera, for a lot of that, which I still think we can learn a lot from the US on that, actually, um, in terms of some of the success stories that have been over there. There's still a huge amount to be done over here in terms of making that work, actually. Um, but yeah, there's, there's uh, some yeah some great brands to be looking at who are who are disrupting. And this is a good transition because you started to mention some of the retailers like I'm interested. And again, this is it'd be difficult probably to go, you know, country by country or even, um, you know, region of, of Europe to region of Europe or whatever. But just to like broadly speaking from, you know, the changing retail landscape you mentioned, you know, I think you guys maybe could learn some things from the American market. I'd imagine we can learn a lot of things from your guys' market about both from the offline perspective um, and then e-commerce. I mean, At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I know that we could talk direct to consumer. We can also talk like online marketplaces and then, you know, what's, what's offline, what's online at this point in terms of like, is it, uh, you know, is it digitally initiated, initiated store fulfilled? You know, like there's so many, I think we're talking about blurring of lines or, you know, categorical silos, the same thing with like retail silos. Like what is the, you know, what's these definitions at this point? Yeah, it, it, uh, it's a really good one. I, I just, you know, for everyone, like, so Amazon's not in every country. So that's important for everyone to know. Like um, it's, it's a huge market in the UK and plays a massive market for sports nutrition in the UK and in Germany, um, France, and there's a few others, but it's not in every European market. I think that's, you've then got completely different retailers or grocers in every single country, really. Um, some go across. Um, so we'd have Tesco Sainsbury's, you've got Albert Hein in um, in uh, Holland, you've got Riva in Germany, and, and then it'll go around. So you, you have got some that go across multiple European countries, but you'll have um, different ones. So you've got so many different kind of cultural challenges there. Um, and everyone in terms of categorization within those stores is different. You know, people will talk about Holland and Barrett, and obviously that's a huge within um, the UK, and they're available in um, Holland, which is there yesterday, so you can see those across Holland and other European countries, but then it kind of sort of tails off. France, you know, hugely driven by pharmacy and parapharmacy as a sort of a channel rather than being in, you know, they're quite insular and where people like to buy that and in in terms of sports nutrition or dietary supplements it doesn't go too mainstream in that so you've you've got real differences in um, channel execution um and then i think i do want to make again the comparison to us but like our d2c with the my protein bulk prosis body and fit part of glambia group jim bean in the east um you've just got some absolute giants giants in our terms again in terms of the relative size in terms of size of these countries but absolute giants of unbelievable providing 450 500 parent products thousands of SKUs um under one sort of brand under one brand d2c phenomenal at getting it out to people and those models are really dominated in fact become a large part of the benchmark for the brands to compete with but yet they're not actually online or delivering in the same way. Um, and that's a real, it's a real challenge for them to benchmark against the MyProtein. But if you are traditionally a bricks and mortar offline brand, how can you possibly do that in terms of range, price um, and so on? Um, so it's, it's quite cutthroat actually in Europe for that. Um, and But I'd say most people start by looking at D2C brands in terms of what's happening actually. Um, that's where people go to. Do you think from you know a business model standpoint um you know you talked a lot about these the direct consumer brands that have you know huge range of products and most of them have the ability to do that because they own their own manufacturing or or are some have some levels of of vertical integration where in the u.s market we tend to be you know glorified marketing companies that are asset light that do mostly contract manufacturing but i i find that a lot of the brands in the uk and in europe like they do a lot of their own manufacturing so then it gives them a competitive advantage when you're talking about you know range of products um and then having that go direct to consumer like you've cut out so many layers because you're basically you know a, a manufacturer to consumer uh, model where you, a lot of these other brands they have so many cost layers that they have to go through because they're paying other people to do important parts of their uh business yeah yeah i mean 
the first thing I think people would do, there's a there's a reason about vertical integration across Europe. And certainly the big brands, I think the first thing they've done, if they didn't do it at the beginning, is to try and bring some sort of powder manufacturing online within the system. Um, I'll never try to make it sound simple, but let's just assume that's the simplest one to do. Buy a couple of mats on tumblers or any other brand, um, stick a bit in and swirl it around. I definitely won't make light to the skill, by the way, but that's normally where they start. Um, probably the one that people struggle to bring online just because of CapEx and also um, uh, the challenge of understanding what to do is just bars, protein bars. So across Europe, I would still say that we're very co-man-led co by that. And there's some very big, sort of well-established, excellent um, protein bar or nutrition cereal bar manufacturers across, across Europe. Um, drinks, again, not easy to bring online. Um, capsules and tabs, maybe they can. Okay, so if you're going to go vertical integration, it's going to be powders number one, um, which by the way is just like the US, the biggest volume driver is sport nutrition, still dairy protein whey, and so on. Um, and you can possibly bring on some caps and tabs at that point. Um, if you're a specialist like um, science and sport, um, I think you know quite well from an endurance yeah. point of view, then of course they've brought on their own gel manufacturing capabilities. Of course that makes sense. Um, so then it might be niches around uh, particular areas. But, I think there's a large amount of vertical integration and that plays a massive advantage, um, but it's pretty much more so much in sort of powders one and then sort of capsules, tablets two, uh, some of the other formats still very co-man led, um, which just means again, that's all the layers of the costings, which causes people a bit of a, a challenge in an inflationary world, really, sadly. Now, just to kind of close out, you know, we could talk forever, but um, I always say I'm not as interesting as somebody like Joe Rogan, where I can keep somebody's attention for three hours. So I try to keep these, you know, in some type of a digestible format of time related, but um, just some kind of contemporary news things that, uh, you know, were on my side that at least have broken through. Um, and I, I know I pay a lot more attention than probably a lot of people in terms of the international news of our space. But I wanted to ask you a few in terms of what you're seeing and, and one, that uh, I'm initially interested in is like what's happened with like the prime hydration. Um, and I know this is like, you know, maybe it's American brand and and though it's kind of a, you know, UK influencer and an American influencer, I know it's kind of made, um, I think mostly here, but I, I don't know if they make it uh, or they probably do at this point, make it um, in country as well. But um, for whatever reason, I've seen seen if it's supply constraints or you know just demand is so outsized from the supply that's available. Like the scenes that you've seen across um, grocery stores and just like people going crazy for this stuff, and you're not seeing that at the same level here in America. Um, yeah, it's still I think extremely um, in demand and. Um, I, I don't, um, I'm not a parent at this point, but I know I've talked to a bunch of them that have younger kids that like they have to go and drive and try to figure out where this stuff is at. So I know that like, it's probably tougher than it should be to find some of this stuff, but I'm interested from like what you have kind of felt from that, because I'm seeing pictures online and everything. And I'm like, this can't be real. This can't be that intense in terms of just people fighting over this product. Just to emphasize for everyone listening, exactly what you just said is exactly what happened. Like it's the most surreal, bonkers thing I've ever seen for effectively flavored water with a bit of electrolytes in it, right? So 
Um, and I, you know, I just know this, I know this product very well, not Brian, but I mean, oh my God, the simplest of products in, to all intents and purposes, being sold both on, in a market, in a grocer and in a black market, like selling for a four pack or a six pack, whatever they retail at, like 60 pounds and more, um, people actually getting them for Christmas and for presents <laughs> because they were so hard to get hold of. Um, you know, there was like, you know, the original uh, sort of like Boxing Day sales type things around yeah. Christmas, where people literally queued up for the hour before because they want to get the best deal. You literally had people queuing up to get into Iceland, I think, or Aldi or whichever one it was. And they were they were sprinting in to get the next drop of Prime. The whole thing is literally to the point where you think I, I'm making I'm surely I'm making this up. I'm, I, I'm making this up, but I'm not. It was actually happening. And it made absolutely no sense. Now, was it? Did they get lucky with an initial supply problem, and then it just sort of escalated? I don't really know how, or the apart from just ridiculous influences with huge networks. But it really did happen. I think it's softened a little bit now. I think you can broadly find it at a reasonable price. Um, but it really did happen. Um, and it's I tell you what, there's not many people who don't know that brand. So in terms of brand awareness, 101, there it is. That's the new way to do it, because. It's like nothing. I almost think I'll never see it again. You know, that's how that's how bonkers that whole thing was. For, um, yeah, I, I think I even saw that like there was a somebody built an app that was tracking like the who had inventory of, of Prime in it um, within the the country. It rose to the number one downloaded app, which I thought was photoshopped when it was getting shared around. I thought this can't be true. Like, how is this the number one app? And no, it was real. This is like a real phenomenon and i'm glad that uh you are uh kind of experiencing it in the same way because i literally am thinking myself like i don't know if i've seen that uh, with the cpg product yeah i think there's you know certain products over the you know, last decade or, or two that i can remember that had this fever to it but not a cpg product a cpg product tends to be best when it's always in stock yeah. and for whatever reason this you know created this amazing effect based on it not being in stock yeah honestly it's it's um none of it makes sense that's the bottom line none of it makes sense it really did happen will it ever be repeated would they be able to do that with a second launch maybe they could i mean because to some extent the brand dna the people behind it is so so unique right uh, you know no other brand can rival that to any real extent so um to some extent, really, in a competitive landscape, it's entirely resilient to anybody who might even have the same product just because purely what it is built upon, which, um, yeah, this is a, is a really interesting thing, isn't it? And um, I think they've, they've, um, they've lodged or they've said they're going to be going down more of a sporting nutrition route, so capsule tablets, supplements or whatever it might be. I did read that somewhere. I'm not entirely certain of the, um, what that means in terms of timeline, truth and so on. It'd be fascinating to see what they what they did in that space. Um, um, just you know to see if people that took off for them. Um, it's logical to try it. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean the portfolio that owns uh, Prime in the U.S. also owns Alani New, um, That's you know, a massive uh, you know few hundred million dollar brand that did uh, started in caps and, and powders and pills. Other than now they sell quite a few hundreds of millions in energy drinks as well. But um, they obviously have the background and the, and the capabilities of doing that. It's just a matter of probably how do you do it uh, uniquely and different for the prime customer? And, and will it hit as much? Because 
you know, obviously supplements are not made for people under the age of, of 18, or at least responsibly. Uh, we, we, we can't say to, to take those, at least in the U.S. So, um, you know, it, should it, will it have the same effect? I don't, I don't know, but, um, you know, who, who knows? Yeah. Another one that um, was uh, something that, at least if anybody, you know, has paid attention to my LinkedIn this week, I, I've spoken about a few times and I've spoken to in the past was, um, you know, the Hut Group or THG's uh, like takeover and, and kind of how that's evolving and, 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 you know, what the possibilities of that is. Obviously, ever since they went, went public, there's been a ton of news coming out of there. Like what's, I guess, gut feeling on all this? Well, ever since they sort of went public, the all eyes has been on it, really. I, I feel for, do I really feel for them? I mean, it's a massive business. What I mean is <laughs> the eyes of scrutiny um, and perception and opinion on it has just been actually huge, hasn't it, since it ever went. And, and principally because it's the first time people have got to be able to look inside the box to some extent. And that's what's fascinating about it, isn't it? Um, I'm not surprised people are interested. I mean, I guess if you look at the market cap at the moment, I'm surprised it is what it is versus yeah. the engine that's underneath it. So um, in which case, the logic would suggest whatever, you know, the announcement this week or the fact that they've had to declare it, um, I just imagine it will just keep on coming. Um, I guess for people who, you know, outside the four walls, trying to marry up the market cap versus the engine that's underneath the business and the success of the various uh, departments and, and so on, doesn't always make sense to me. And I'm not sure I can quite piece that all together in truth. Um, so whilst it stands at the moment, I just think it's logical that more people are going to look to have those conversations. Where their heads at in terms of what they'd look to do with it, um, they've grown to where they have with a very particular opinion and dogged approach to how they were going to build the market. So I think they would be broadly reluctant um, sellers, let's say, for one of an expression for a period of time. But um, the more people knock on the door, the more interesting the offers might be, I suspect. So um, I, I think it'll just be something that we'll continue to hear more and more about, actually. Um, but again, the scrutiny of it, because it's been public, is probably what's the most fascinating thing. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, um, we don't often get to see that level of transparent transparency again within any of the big businesses, do we, apart from just normal quarterly results from the big big companies. So it's quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, that'll just keep on coming. So you're going to have plenty of content to make on that uh, every year, I, I suspect. Yeah, I feel like... Uh, you know, maybe a lot of people don't know what you kind of mentioned, the engine, or I always kind of mention it like as the heartbeat of, of THG is that ingenuity, the, the platform that they built behind the, the brands and, and that in itself is super valuable. But then when you look at the market cap and you look at just when we're talking you know, nutrition, we're just talking my protein, mm -hmm. like that valuations even seems um, very light to me uh, off the market cap, just on one brand, not even counting the 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 back-end systems, all the assets that they own globally, plus the whole beauty yeah. um, side that's double the size of the nutrition side. Exactly. 
Exactly. Um, so you just put it perfectly. I had a conversation about it earlier today um, with someone very knowledgeable, and it's exactly the same. It was that kind of like the, the cat versus the engine versus. It just makes sense to me that they're just going to field a lot of conversations um, because some that just doesn't make sense to me. So, um, I, and I think uh, for everyone listening, honestly, the the quality, the, the business is great, right? Loads of people have different views, but what they've built, how they go about it, my lens through nutrition, well, you know. The ability they do make great products they've got a phenomenal online uh, business the ability to transfer that across global territories is almost unparalleled um yeah i mean it's what a phenomenal business and engine so who's not going to be interested um yeah and um and the, the whole sensitized approach to better nutrition whether that's sporty or active whatever we want to call it it isn't going away for a very long time to come so um to some extent it's just going to be how do you keep getting this sort of more people involved and more people part of it and a good way to do that is is online and and covering every eventuality and and, and actually my protein covers every product eventuality broadly that you could possibly offer so it's a great platform to look at yeah definitely and then last one that um has been kind of interesting for me to watch is and we and we kind of briefly mentioned it earlier was the grenade bar with the collab with oreo and that hasn't at least from my understanding hasn't really or maybe is not going to be available in the u.s market uh, but it's at least from what i'm seeing um has been you know selling like hotcakes yeah. and it's hard to keep in stock again maybe not to the level of, of prime of what we're talking about here but um also i think people are really excited about that and that is Again, we, I think there are a ton of global collaborations that have happened in a ton of different markets. Um, I, I would, you know, say that the American market probably has taken it to the extreme of, of the amount of collabs uh, that we have kind of put out in that space. But I think that it's interesting globally for consumers to be able to, you know, uh, have a, a product or a flavor innovation uh, that they're relating to some nostalgic point and now they're able to have it in a better for you or a healthier snack it's attractive overall especially if you can hit on it perfectly and it seems like grenade has done extremely well with that oreo launch yeah yeah i mean it's a it's a beautiful match um so grenade to all intents and purposes really for over here i mean some might argue otherwise but broadly made the first protein bar that people decided was what they really enjoyed eating you know let's just say let's just say it broke it broke through a precipice of 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 interest around protein bars definitely um and they then drove and then the various line capital and then then the you know the the, the investments along the way have, have really helped them grow that and to all intents and purposes i think i would see them as a healthy snacking or just a high protein bar brand really the purchase of mondelez or the acquisition by mondelez it, it was almost a matter of time to when when why would you not collab yeah. that why would you not i mean it just makes no sense not to Interestingly, in the broader picture of protein bars, which I think, you know, I'm very interested in anyway, in terms of from a data point of view, I don't think there's any doubt that you would position trends related to trying to make more of a confectionery classics, let's say. Um, bars are becoming a little bit smaller. There's a little bit less protein per bar, although ironically, the grade is still 20 grams. There's a lot more going down to 50. There's a lot more layering, innovation with all the ingredient suppliers around uh taste texture layering uh interest and it's all really to create um 
a protein a chocolate bar high in protein and, and it's yeah. a subtle shift between the difference between saying this is a protein bar and a this is a chocolate bar high in protein now within all of that we've seen uh, the snickers and the milky way and all of those which basically is coming from the other direction uh, to creating to creating protein and actually people sort of poo poo that and suggest they've not been a success but the reality is they do actually okay um so uh, it, it's all this move that it's this healthy confectionery is just where protein bars can truly penetrate into a much bigger world. And I, I think actually with the Oreo collab, I think it's almost like Grenada re-scratching a surface to where that can go mm-hmm. um, in terms of protein bars. I particularly, as I, be- I truly believe there's so much more innovation and work to be done to make protein bars taste even better, softer, across shelf life like it's just a challenge that, that every dairy supplier or plant-based yeah. product knows that they have made huge strides but need to continue to make strides so the quality of the bars over shelf life and where they'll get to and other innovations it, I, I just don't see a world where that just does not continue to evolve and get better and better and better and with that i just think that that now has hit another layer that's hit another scratching surface level where I just think it's kind of popped through and then it's just going to go again. Um, and that's how I see that category um, from a personal point of view. I mean, that's that's my view, but I, I think we have a bit of data to support that. Um, and so I think that collab is absolutely class. It's just class. Um, and more of those, please. Um, yeah. I, can't, I can't imagine that we're not going to see Ferrero do the same with Fulfill. Yeah. And I can't imagine we won't see two or three others, But but let's see um let's see where that goes um you know my protein did one with hotel chocolat uh yeah hotel chocolat i don't know that's a so i mean that was a beautiful one what a great way to make a protein bar to drive trial versus another chocolate bar or listen we know the top flavors and they're all the same but if you suddenly say it's hotel chocolat why would you not try it yeah i mean yeah it's a no-brainer so i think the collabs as well have so much space to go um as well um, and this is a great example. So a long-winded answer to say, it's just a start, Josh, just a start. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally co-sign what you're saying. And, and both from the, you know, every dairy supplier um, is, is trying to solve these problems. And, and they obviously are continuing to come out with innovations and kind of improve their protein technologies for the bar format because they know that is going to really drive forward the next phase of this um, category as a whole. And then... Secondly, I'm I'm kind of pulling for the Grenade and Oreo um, collab to work out extremely well because for the last, I don't know how many years at this point, probably three or four years, I've been uh, asking why is, you know, somebody like Hershey's that bought um, one bar over in America, like why are they not, you know, using some of their massively successful IP, Hershey's, Reese's, whatever it is, like to uh, create bars um, in some way because that could in my mind, I think double or triple that that yeah. business. Uh, but for whatever reason, maybe they needed somebody else to show them the way and say, hey, you could trust this move. It's going to work out successfully. And now, um, hopefully, that's kind of their uh, business case that somebody can bring it in that room and say, let's do it. Let's finally get this going. Yeah, I would. I hope it's not just politics that have prevented that happening. I suspect yeah. it probably is. And some brand owners going, there's nowhere I want I chocolate brand being associated over there and they need to dry I, I hope that's not the case but probably it will be um but it's um yeah it's it's going to continue to happen and and honestly i think it's it's going to create 
even though we've been talking about it for a long time, even though people know protein bars and everyone's been, it's like one of those trends of people, it's not a trend anymore. I think it will be a retrend because of where this can go again, because I think the layer or the lens of the, the opportunities is a different level now compared to where protein bars have moved to already, yeah. which is, by the way, quite transformative. Um, and I think this level of transformative um, element again is, is, is quite significant. Um, the interesting thing for me is this, as well as plant circles our entire industry, and um, again, that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it, really? Um, it's just that I just the, the, the contribution of plant to those type of bars just cannot catch up in terms of its taste, its texture, etc. You know, the re- I'm not saying it won't get there, but I don't see too many like people talking about chocolate bars having to be plant based and so on. So it's kind of that whole confectionery area. It still is there a little bit, isn't it? But um, it just can't catch up. So if I was, what a great place for the dairy world to just continue to to drive some great innovation is in this place because they've just got they've got an acceleration still. I just find it yeah. difficult to see sort of the plant-based equivalents catch up in terms of truly creating that indulgent opportunity around protein bars as it stands at the moment. But I hope they prove me wrong um, or they can catch up because um, I wouldn't I want to alienate any friends out there. But um, it's a it's an interesting one. It's just it the plant doesn't scratch the surface on that one yet. So yeah, and maybe it'll be some um, some Jetson like um, you know precision yeah. fermentation angle that's plant but not plant. Uh, you know whatever you kind of want. Maybe that's the the uh, the the chance that if they are supercharged with uh, technology, these plants could take on the cow. I don't know. I don't know. You were, I mean, and, and actually, it's a great shout. And to some extent, the Woo Bar, isn't it? Which is sort of, a, yeah. I don't think it does any good, but that's what they have done there. And um, if, if anyone wants to go and read the product description of that, it basically says twice the protein and half the sugar of a chocolate bar. So there's not one element about that bar that even tries to say it's a protein bar. It just says we're chocolate and we're better for you. Um, and that, that in a nutshell, that product description in a nutshell is that trend. Um, so maybe it is the precision fermentation group that can make that difference because um, that might be the one. Who knows? Well, Nick, I appreciate all the time you gave me, all the insights you provided. It was awesome. So um, thank you again for joining me. Yeah, pleasure. Loved it. Um, keep up the good work. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 